welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Julia. Hi, Lauren. I, I will admit I kind of zoned out there for a second and couldn't remember my lines. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> It happens even though we've done this apparently 193 times. Oh my gosh, so many times. You know, it's funny. It doesn't feel like 193 times. And also, by the way... (laughs) (laughs) Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. You know what I mean? Like time is a construct in a flat circle and it's difficult to really grasp. Um, But I will say our 200th is coming up and I am very excited we have something. If it's going to work out, which I think it will... I hope it will. I I think we've got something very fun planned for you. So stay tuned for that. But um, I will say, like, looking back, like, oh, my gosh, we did so many topics. We did so many things. And uh, I was like, you know, again, you know, I'm on my my whole going back into the annals of our topics, mm-hmm. Steve's, and doing some some more stuff. And actually, Steve suggested this to me. He was like, why don't you do more stones? Okay. Like rocks, pebbles. No. Um okay. uh, what if I did more a pebble like, is just a smaller rock. Yeah. I'm just gonna talk about different size grapple. Gravel. You know, that kind of gravel, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I'm going to be doing uh today I've decided I'm going to be doing semi precious stones. So if you remember, uh, way back when, uh, our episode number 31, Diamonds Are Forever. It's very good. Um, thank you. I talk about uh, the like a couple of semi-precious stones, but definitely like the big four, diamonds, emeralds, rubies, and sapphires. Mm-hmm. So today I'm going to talk about a couple of like maybe the lesser stones, but things that people are familiar with, but, you know, talk about where they come from and what they're made of and what they're used for. So. Awesome. Just to start with, basically, a semi-precious stone, also known as a gemstone, a jewel, etc., are basically just the gems that are not the precious ones. As I mentioned before, diamond, emerald, ruby, and sapphire. Uh, They are usually pieces of mineral crystal, which in cut and polished form is used to make jewelry and other adornments. And however, certain rocks, such as lapis lazuli and opal, which I mention in that episode, Diamonds Are Forever... Um, and also occasionally organic materials that are not minerals, such as amber, jet, and pearl, are also used for jewelry and are therefore often considered to be gemstones as well. Yes. So in this episode, we're basically going to start with the minerals, and then we're going to move to the organics, because those are really cool. So we are going to start with quartz. Yes. So quartz is essentially a hard crystalline mineral composed of silicon and oxygen atoms. And there are many different varieties of quartz. I'll talk a little bit about a couple of them. Um, But several of them are semi-precious gemstones. And since antiquity, varieties of quartz have been the most commonly used minerals in the making of jewelry and hard stone carvings, especially in Eurasia. Um, quartz is the mineral defining the value of seven on the Mohs scale of hardness. And a reminder, the Mohs scale goes from one softest, uh, which is usually talc, is the softest, to 10, which is the hardest, which is, of course, a diamond. Diamond. Um, the word quartz is derived from the German quartz, and which came from the Polish dialect term quarty. Uh, and the but the ancient Greeks referred to quartz as krustolos, um, meaning icy cold. Hmm. And apparently, Roman naturalist Pliny the Elder believed quartz to be water ice permanently frozen after great lengths of time, which oh, makes interesting. sense. Yeah, like quartz comes out of the ground kind of clear and and like shiny. And so if you're digging around in the ground, like way back when, and you pull out something that looks a hell of a lot like ice, you're going to think, huh, this must be a form of ice, permanently, you know, frozen forever. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, he, Pliny, supported this idea by saying that quartz is found near glaciers in the Alps, but not on volcanic mountains, and that large quartz crystals were fashioned into spheres to cool the hands because um, quartz is very cool to the touch. Uh, this idea persisted until at least the 17th century, and he also knew of the ability of quartz to split light into a spectrum. You can use quartz to, to um, as a prism. Oh, okay. 
Uh, today, the term rock crystal is sometimes used as an alternative name for the purest form of quartz with no inclusions. It's very clear. You can, again, like you can use it as a prism. Um, quartz is also the most common material identified as the mystical substance Mabin in Australian Aboriginal mythology. It is also found regularly in passage tomb cemeteries in Europe, in burial contexts such as Newgrange or Caramore in Ireland. Uh, it was also used in prehistoric Ireland, as well as many other countries for stone tools. And also both vein quartz and rock crystal were napped as part of the lithic technology of the prehistoric people. So napped like, like, like basically struck um, to make sharp tools. Okay. Mm-hmm. So while jade has been since earliest times the most prized semi-precious stone for carving in East Asia and pre-Columbian America, in Europe and the Middle East, the different varieties of quartz were the most commonly used for the various types of jewelry and hard stone carving, including engraved gems and cameo gems, rock crystal vases, and extravagant vessels. And the tradition continued to produce objects that were very highly valued until the mid-19th century when it largely fell from fashion except for jewelry. Yeah, I was going to say, at what point did we start aligning our chakras? <laughs> yeah, um, I met, I was going to, like, talk about, like, <laughs> like crystals as, like, like a new hot thing right now. But uh, it was just so exhausting. It's, to think it's about. a lot. There's a lot so, out there. It's just about a it, lot. But. It's just a lot. Apparently, like, rose quartz is supposed to help with love. And, like, you know, I mean, you imagine, like, the colors tend to, like, associate mm-hmm. with things. Like, obsidian goes with strength. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just sleep on a bed of green quartz and hope yeah. that it will bring me <laughs> riches. Money? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing is quartz is often used for watches um, mm-hmm. and clocks. And um, this is because quartz crystals have piezoelectric properties. So they develop an electric potential upon the application of mechanical stress. So when it's when it's under like pressure, like mm-hmm. mechanical pressure, um, it is a good conductor of electricity and a, a regular conductor of electricity. So an early use of this property was in phonograph pickups. And uh, again, one of the most common piezoelectric uses of quartz today is as a crystal oscillator. Um, and of course, as I mentioned before, the quartz clock is a familiar device using the mineral. Um, most quartz, I should mention, used in these applications are today synthesized since naturally occurring pure quartz is very rare. So it's usually very easily grown in a lab. So next we're going to talk about amethyst, which is actually just a violet variety of quartz. Um, Don't amethyst, tell my mom that. She loves I, it. I, Sorry. Uh, well, actually, she has some. I'll, in a second, you'll find out like why it's so prized. But um, the name comes from the Greek uh, a not and methisko or metho, meaning intoxicate, which is a reference to the belief that the stone protected its owner from drunkenness. Yeah. <laughs> so the ancient Greeks wore amethyst and carved drinking vessels from it in the belief that it would prevent intoxication. Obviously, that isn't very true. But, you know, what are you going to do? Um, high quality amethyst can be found in Siberia, Sri Lanka, Brazil, Uruguay, and the Far East. And the ideal grade is called Deep Siberian and has a primary purple hue of about 75 to 80% with 15 to 20% blue and some red secondary hue. So essentially, Deep Siberian is like the deepest, purpliest purple amethyst you can find. I love that. Which is kind of exciting. Uh, Rose de France is defined by its markedly light shade of purple. It's usually like kind of lavender or lilac. Um, And these pale colors were once considered undesirable, but have recently become very popular due to intensive marketing. And we talk a little bit about like chocolate diamonds. (laughs) Yeah, just like chocolate diamonds. Yeah. But I would much rather buy like a lovely pale lilac amethyst than I would a brown diamond. I mean, (laughs) go back to the episode 31 and I like really like go off on brown diamonds. But um, Tibetans consider amethyst sacred to the Buddha and make prayer beads from it. And amethyst is considered the birthstone of February. Um, in the Middle Ages, it was considered a symbol of royalty and used to decorate English regalia because it is purple. And purple was also a very rare dye um, and was relegated because of sumptuary laws to only the, you know, the nobility to mm-hmm. wear purple. And this extended to gemstones as well. 
Um, in the old world, amethyst was considered one of the cardinal gems and that it was one of the five gemstones considered precious above all others. So for a very long time, and you can tell your mom this, the five like most rare and most prized and most valuable gemstones that you could possibly have were diamonds, emeralds, rubies, amethyst, sapphires, yeah, and sapphires, yeah. So it was considered, you know, one of the rarest and one of the most prized gemstones. And then what happened? And then they, they found, found a bunch. They found a bunch, <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, this garbage, forget it." Um, they actually specifically found them in Brazil. Uh, medieval European soldiers also wore amethyst amulets as protection in battle in the belief that amethysts heal people and keep them cool-headed. Um, beads of amethyst were found in Anglo-Saxon graves in England, and Anglican bishops wear an Episcopal ring often set with an amethyst, which is an allusion to the description of the apostles as, quote, not drunk at Pentecost in Acts 2.15. So this it all goes back to like the Greek idea of like it protecting you from drunkenness. There's kind of like a, a like a vaguely pagan aspect to it, which I thought was kind of interesting. So garnets. Garnets are a group of silicate minerals that have been used since the Bronze Age as gemstones and abrasives. And all species of garnets possess similar physical properties in crystal forms, but different in chemical composition. So I'll essentially talk about them in general as garnets, because Mm -hmm. we're not going to get into like the little detailed parts of garnets. Uh, The word garnet comes from the 14th century Middle English word uh, gernet, meaning dark red. And this is possibly a reference to a pomegranate whose seeds are similar in shape, size, and color yeah, to some garnet crystals. That. Yeah. Um, garnet species are found in every color with the reddish shades are most common. Um, blue garnets are the rarest and were first reported in the 1990s. So they're fairly recent discovery. Hmm. Garnets are also on the Mohs scale around six to 7.5. So they're, you know, they're fairly hard. Um, Pure crystals of garnet are still used as gemstones. Um, The gemstone varieties occur in shades of green, red, yellow, and orange, most commonly. And in the U.S., it's known as the birthstone for January. Um, It is the state mineral of Connecticut. It is New York's gemstone. So the official gemstone of New York State is the garnet. The state in which we reside. Yes, the state in which we reside. Is it commonly found here? I don't think so but i don't think it seems like, very silly that you would call it your thing if, i don't know maybe because it's red i have no idea <laughs> like red like the apple you know yeah yeah like the like an apple you know which is the state fruit i think i mean whatever who knows um well you know, we, the apple seems, muffin is the state snack so <laughs> yeah so you're it's probably right um so uh also um Star garnet, which is a garnet with rutile asterisms. So we talk about asterisms in Diamonds Are Forever. So mm-hmm. it looks like there's a beautiful star inside of it. Um, that is the state gemstone of Idaho. Uh, so there you go. Uh, in Persia, this birth gem was considered a talisman from nature's forces like storm and lightning. And it was widely accepted that garnet could signal approaching danger by turning pale. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, garnet sand is a good abrasive, and it's usually a common re- replacement for silica sand in sandblasting. And alluvial garnet grains, which are rounder and more suitable for such blasting treatments, are, are specifically used. Um, mixed with very high pressure water, garnet is used to cut steel and other materials in water jets. Um, also, garnet paper is favored by cabinet makers for finishing bare wood. And also, huh. garnet sand is also used for water filtration. So, um, garnet sand seems to be used most often in like industrial purposes and that kind of thing. I guess I wouldn't have thought about using semi-precious gemstones in that capacity, but yeah, I mean, it's the, I guess, um, uh, corundum. So like, uh, uh, yeah, grade, okay. sapphires and, and rubies are often used for like, sand I can see for like drill kind of bits and stuff, but yeah, absolutely. I guess I didn't think of like, we're going to sandblast this thing with, with beautiful yeah, garnets. With beautiful. Oh, it's <laughs> yeah. going to glitter so wonderfully. Yeah. Sparkle like a diamond, like a garnet. Um, next, we'll move to turquoise. So turquoise is interesting because it doesn't, it isn't clear. It's opaque. Mm-hmm. And it's described as like the, the surface of it naturally is described as waxy. Mm-hmm. And I never really thought about that as like, like a, 
a finish of a stone, but it is like when you see raw turquoise, it looks waxy. It looks like you could like light a wick and it probably smell like, I don't know, the ocean or whatever. Um, but turquoise is opaque. It's, you know, blue to green. Uh, it is a mineral that is a hydrated phosphate of copper and aluminum. Um, it's fairly rare. It's valuable in finer grades and has been prized as a gemstone and ornamental stone for thousands of years owing to its unique hue. Um, like most other opaque gems, turquoise has been devalued by the introduction onto the market of treatments, imitations, and synthetics. So it is very <laughs> easy to find imitation or synthetic <laughs> turquoise that looks very similar to real turquoise. So sometimes, like, to a layman's eye, you can't really tell the difference between real turquoise and, like, synthesized turquoise, which kind of makes all turquoise look cheap. If I you feel bought like- it at a truck stop... Yeah, off of, the, probably, off of the Pennsylvania Turnpike. It's, it's probably, probably not, real. not real. No, it's probably not real. Um, it's also been known by many names. Again, Pliny the Elder, who wrote about a lot of stuff, he referred to the mineral as Calais from uh, from the ancient Greek word for it. Um, and the Aztecs knew it as uh, Chalquihuitl. And I apologize to all the Aztecs listening that I may have pronounced that wrong. Um, the word turquoise dates to the 17th century and is derived from the French turquoise, meaning Turkish, because the mineral was first brought to Europe through Turkey from mines in the historic Khorasan uh, of Iran, which is Persia. Um, the finest of turquoise match reaches a maximum Mohs hardness of just under six or slightly more than window glass. So it's not e- extraordinarily hard. Mm-hmm. So it's not like a hard wearing mineral. Um, also, it was one of the first gems to be mined, and many historic sites have been depleted, though some are still working to this day. Uh, most are worked by hand with little or no mechanization. Uh, however, turquoise is often recovered as a byproduct of larger-scale copper mining operations, especially in the U.S., which makes sense because it is um, is like made of t- copper. Yeah. Um, Iran has been an important source of turquoise for at least 2,000 years, and in Iranian architecture, the blue turquoise was used to cover the domes of palaces because its intense blue color was also a symbol of heaven on earth. Um, And also since at least the first dynasty, or 3000 BCE, in ancient Egypt, and possibly even before then, turquoise was used by Egyptians and was mined by them in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, as you can imagine, and as I'm sure you know, the Southwest U.S. is a significant source of turquoise. Arizona, California, Colorado, New Mexico, and Nevada are or were especially rich in turquoise. Uh, the deposits of California and New Mexico were mined by pre-Columbian Native Americans using stone tools, some local and some from as far away as central Mexico. Uh, Cerrillos, New Mexico, is thought to be the location of the oldest mines. Prior to the 1920s, the state was the country's largest producer, and it is more or less exhausted today. Um, only one mine in California located at Apache Canyon operates at a commercial capacity today, and Arizona is currently the most important producer of turquoise by value. I would be remiss sure, if we did not mention that there is one McDonald's in the world that doesn't have <laughs> golden arches. It is turquoise arches. In Sedona, Arizona. Wow. Is that because of the turquoise yes. deposits there? Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes sense. To like fit in huh. with the town's like aesthetic. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. How do you know that? I don't, I don't know how I know that. I just wanted to, <laughs> just wanted to point it out. <laughs> no, that's great. Look, no, I'm certainly not. There's no, no okay, I just critiques here. I just was curious. Oh, okay. Sedona is known for its amazing red rocks and stunning landscape. The city has many sure. rules for buildings in Sedona. They don't want the buildings to change how beautiful the town is. And so oh, okay. when the McDonald's was being built in 1993, city officials thought that the bright golden M would intrude on upon the beauty of their town. Instead, agreed. they made the arches turquoise that would blend in and not clash with the landscape. And McDonald's agreed with them. It is a unique tourist destination for those visiting Sedona. People love to take photos with the blue toned logo and mm. post it on social media. There is nothing else different about this McDonald's. Everything is just <laughs> like any other McDonald's, except it has turquoise arches. Interesting. So if you are ever driving through Sedona, make sure you stop at those turquoise arches and get a regular ass hamburger because you're not getting anything different. No. <laughs> well, cool. That's interesting. <laughs> No, I mean it. I mean, I know that's just my voice. No, it's, it is. It's It's interesting. Um, so 
the shades of turquoise it comes in pastel, the deep blue. Um, this obviously was very prized by a lot of cultures of antiquity. Um, it has adorned the rulers of ancient Egypt, the Aztecs, and possibly other pre-Columbian Mesoamericans, Persia, Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, and to some extent in ancient China since at least the Shang dynasty. Um, it, despite being one of the oldest gems, probably first introduced to Europe through Turkey with other Silk Road novelties, turquoise did not become an important as an ornamental stone in the West until the 14th century, following a decline in the Roman Catholic Church's influence, which allowed the use of turquoise in secular jewelry. So hmm. they kind of kept it to themselves until, you know, that kind of stopped. Um, a common belief shared by many of these civilizations held that turquoise possessed certain prophylactic qualities. Um, much like garnet, it was thought to change color when the wearer's health and protect him or her from untoward forces. So it would change color if you were getting sick or or there was danger afoot. But or like whatever. they thought it would do that. Can you imagine what like um what like a nineteen seventies mood ring would have been like to to oh anybody my in ancient times? <laughs> Like, That's ooh. what I'm going to bring back in my time machine to yeah. wherever I end up. I'll just have like a box of those like novelty mood rings with a smiley face <laughs> or a peace sign on them. Absolutely. Oh. And then you can say these. this is from our gods. And it will tell you how you feel. Yep. <laughs> so get ready for that. Oh, okay. I'm going to give you a little card. This is like black, yeah. angry. I'm feeling blue, cheeky. happy. <laughs> I'm, red means horny. You'll learn what that, fi- what that means. <laughs> Don't worry, guys. You'll know what that means. There she goes. Okay. Um, also, this gemstone has been esteemed for thousands of years as a holy stone, a bringer of good fortune or a talisman. Uh, the oldest evidence for this claim was found in ancient Egypt, where grave furnishings with turquoise inlay were discovered dating from approximately 3000 BCE. In the ancient Persian Empire, the sky blue gemstones were uh, worn round the neck or wrist as protection against unnatural death. And if they changed color, the wearer was thought to have reason to fear the approach of doom. Again, did anybody think that they did change color? I don't know. I mean, maybe if you're like really looking at it, like maybe you're you're like waiting for it to happen. You know, you're like, oh, this looks a little bit darker, you know. Um, however, it has been discovered that turquoise can change color. What? But again, is not necessarily a sign of impending danger. It's caused by the light. It's Wait. caused by like exposure to light. It's not necessarily because of impending danger. No, I mean, you never know. I mean, the jury is out on that one, but. It doesn't mean someone can be- poisoned your stew. Maybe. Because it's caused by light or by chemical reaction brought about by cosmetics, dust, or the acidity of skin. So one could make the argument that if you have been poisoned and you are sweating acid and your turquoise bracelet changes color, doom is afoot. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying it's it's possible. Um. Also, turquoise is the traditional birthstone for those born in the month of December. It's also a stone in the Jewish high priest's breastplate described in Exodus chapter 28 and is also considered sacred to the indigenous Zuni and Pueblo people of the American Southwest. Um, And finally, we're going to get to the organics. So we're going to start with amber, which is the color of my energy. Um, You're welcome for getting that song. (laughs) stuck in your head thank you 311 steve does that to me all the time all the time anytime amber is mentioned anytime he sees the color he goes and then he starts singing the song i'm not gonna sing it i'm not gonna do it well you might as well have i know i'm sorry it is the color of my energy though okay it amber is fossilized tree resin that has been appreciated for its color and natural beauty since neolithic times we all became very familiar with it when they used a yes. mosquito to clone yep. dinosaurs. In Jurassic Park, which is great. Which, you know what, sounds, I mean, I'm not a, like, I'm not an archaeologist, but that sounds real. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that you're not opposed to it. <laughs> no, <laughs> like, bring on the dinosaurs. I don't care. I'll lay in the street and let a T-Rex eat me. Who cares? <laughs> Take one for so, science. Yeah. Yep. Um, amber is made into a variety of decorative objects. Uh, it's used in jewelry. It's also been used as a healing agent in folk medicine. Hmm. Uh, there are five classes of amber defined on the basis of their chemical makeup. Um, so because it originates as a soft, sticky tree resin, amber sometimes contains animal and plant material as inclusions, which are sometimes prized. Uh, amber occurring in coal seams is called resinite. 
and the term ambrite is applied to that found specifically within New Zealand coal seams. Uh, most amber has a hardness between 2 and 2.5 on the most scale. So it is, as you can imagine, very soft. The English word amber derives from Arabic anbar. The word was adopted in Middle English in the 14th century as referring to what is now known as ambergris or ambergris or gray amber, um, which was a solid waxy stub substance mm. derived from the sperm whale. So the two substances known as yellow amber and gray amber conceivably became associated with or confused because they were both found washed up on beaches pretty frequently. Uh, ambergris is less dense than water and floats while amber is too dense to float, although it is less dense than stone. So the classical name for amber, uh, which is the Latin electrum and the ancient Greek electron, uh, are connected to a term meaning beaming sun, because according to myth, when Phaeton, son of Helios, was killed, his mourning sisters became poplar trees and their trees became electron or amber. Uh, the word electron gave rise to the words electric, electricity, and their relatives because of amber's ability to bear a charge of static electricity. Okay. So you could get a shock from from amber. Mm -hmm. uh, amber has a long history of use in China with the first written record from about 200 BC. Early in the 19th century, the first reports of amber found in North America came from discoveries in New Jersey, which, <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, the oldest amber recovered dates to the upper uh, Carboniferous period, which is 320 million years ago. All the people in New Jersey are like, yeah, amber, baby, that's us. Yeah. New Jersey strong. Left turns only. Yeah. You <laughs> handles, baby. pump our gas, <laughs> amber. I don't pump my own gas, puh. Amber. I named my daughter that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, amber has been used since prehistory in the manufacture of jewelry and ornaments, as I mentioned, also in folk medicine. Uh, it has been used in jewelry since the Stone Age from 13,000 years ago. Uh, amber ornaments have been found in Mycenaean tombs and elsewhere across Europe, and to this day it's used in the manufacture of smoking and glass-blowing mouthpieces. Uh, Amber's place in culture and tradition lends its tourism value. The Palanga Amber Museum in Lithuania is dedicated to the fossilized resin. Um, so amber has been used in folk medicine for its purported healing properties and amber and extracts were used from the time of Hippocrates in ancient Greece for a wide variety of treatments through the middle ages and up until the early 20th century. Um, traditional Chinese medicine uses amber to tranquilize the mind, uh, and amber necklaces are a traditional European remedy for colic or teething pain due to the purported analgesic properties of uh, succinic acid, although there is no evidence that this is an effective remedy or delivery method. You might see um, uh, mommy bloggers or uh, Instagram moms use amber necklaces on their toddlers. And the American and Association of Pediatrics does not recommend using amber necklaces. I was necklaces. literally just about <laughs> to say that the American Academy of Pediatrics and the FDA have warned strongly <laughs> against their use as they present both a choking and a strangulation hazard. Mm -hmm. So please do not give your child an amber necklace to like munch on. There are plenty of other things that your child can safely like, I don't know, stimulate their gums. Uh, in ancient China, it was customary to burn amber during large festivals. And if amber is heated under the right conditions, oil of amber is produced. And in past times, this was combined carefully with nitric acid to create artificial musk or a resin with a peculiar musky odor. Um, although when burned, amber does does give off a characteristic kind of pine wood fragrance. Mm -hmm. Modern products such as perfume do not normally use actual amber due to the fact that the fossilized amber produces very little scent. So you've seen, like, you know, you've Candles. gone into Bath and Bath, mm -hmm. Bath, Bath and Body Works and been like amber woods, or like you've turned over a perfume and or you've gotten like one of those little like perfume samples like with notes of uh, vanilla. Uh, purple orchid and mm -hmm. amber and mm -hmm. these aren't it isn't actually like amber the stone that is used in this um, in perfumery specifically scents referred to as amber are often created and patented to emulate the opulent visual golden warmth of amber the stone hey it works yeah hey i as soon as i see amber woods i'm like get my nose in there i need it i love a warm smoky scent um, the scent of amber was originally derived from emulating the scent of ambergris and or the plant resin labdanum. 
Um, but due to the endangered species status of the sperm whale, the scent of amber is now largely derived from labdanum. Uh, the term amber is usually used to describe a scent that is warm, musky, rich, and honey-like, and also somewhat earthy. It can be synthetically created or derived from natural resins. So that's where you get like the amber scent quality. It's more of like what you would imagine amber would smell like, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that smell is. Um, they also add like vanilla to it as well to kind of give it like a, you know, kind of a gourmand. That's that's the that's the perfume term, gourmand smell. And finally, we're going to talk about jet. Are you not going to talk about my favorite room that disappeared? What my favorite room that disappeared? Oh yeah, the big room the amber room. The amber room. No, worry. I pulled up some info because I oh, wanted yeah, to make please. sure that we covered this. No, um, go ahead. You know what? While we're on Amber, talk about it, please. Yeah. So uh, I think in my episode on the seven wonders of the world, um, I did a quiz mm -hmm. on like things that have been considered the eighth wonders of the world. And this was one of them. So the Amber Room was a room that was decorated in amber panels that were backed with gold leaf and mirrors that was located in the Catherine Palace near St. Petersburg. So um, it was constructed in the 18th century in Prussia and the room was dismantled and eventually disappeared during World War II. And um, because of the time that it was around, there there are photographs of it. So we do know what it yeah. looked like. It was intended in 1701 for the Charlottenburg Palace in Berlin, Prussia, but was eventually installed at a different palace. Designed by German Baroque sculptor Andreas Schulter and Danish amber craftsman Gottfried Wolfum. Um, they worked until 1707, and then some other amber masters took over. It was given by the Prussian king, Frederick William the first to his allies are Peter the Great of the Russian Empire and the room was installed in the Catherine Palace. It covered more than 55 square meters, that's 590 square feet, and contained over six tons or 13,000 pounds of amber. It Amazing. was a priceless piece of art with extraordinary architectural features like gilding, carvings, amber panels, gold leaf, gemstones, and mirrors, all highlighted by candlelight. It Beautiful. Um, it like the photos that you've seen, like that that people have colorized of what it looked like. It's mm -hmm. in it's incredible. Um, modern estimates of the room's value range from one hundred forty two to over five hundred million dollars. Oh my god! And so, basically, during World War Two, mm. um, several eyewitnesses claimed to have spotted the famous room being dismantled and loaded on board um, a ship, which left. Um, which left Russia, um, mm -hmm. may have been torpedoed and sunk by a Soviet submarine. Um, incredible. So it, amazing. It, they have since like recreated it, not necessarily with amber, but you know, you can kind of see it a similar, you know, a similar appearance of what it would have looked mm -hmm. like, but it's, it's very cool. Yeah. Definitely look up the colorized photos of them because it's just stunning to see. It's really gorgeous. What a what a waste. What a loss <laughs> in the world. And again, blame the Nazis because they're the worst. You That's heard it mean. here, folks. You heard it here. You know what? I am not afraid to say Just that the say Nazis. Now. Yep. They were the they're worst. They're the worst. They're the worst. Punch a Nazi today. Um, okay. Sorry. <clears throat> Sorry for the digression. No, please. It's it was definitely not a digression. It was definitely a it was related to this, and you've enriched my topic thank you julia but now we're going to talk about jet which if you had a whole room made of jet it would not be as exciting <laughs> so uh jet is a type of lignite which is the lowest rank of coal Ooh, and great. it is in fact a gemstone uh unlike many gemstones jet is not a mineral but it's rather a mineraloid it is derived from wood that has changed under extreme pressure or coal so it's basically uh, like a fossil yeah too. it's a fossil much like you know m much like amber is mm -hmm. but it's a fossil of wood mm -hmm. yeah uh the english noun jet is derived from the french word for the same material which is jet j uh <laughs> modern french j whatever uh it is either black or dark brown uh but it might contain pirate inclusions which are a brassy color and a metallic luster um, the adjective jet black, meaning as dark as possible, derives from this material. And as you can imagine, um, 
you could use that word to describe Vantablack, maybe, uh, which was from last week's episode. So, you know, look at us making connections left, right, and center. It's very good. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. It was a very good episode. Just last week. <laughs> Um, jet is a product of decomposition of wood from millions of years ago, and it's found in two forms, hard and soft. Uh, hard jet is the result of carbon compression and salt water, and soft jet may be the result of carbon compression and fresh water. Interesting. Um, despite the name, they both occupy the same area of the Mohs scale from about 2.5 to 4. Um, the difference being that soft jet is more likely to crack when exposed to changes in temperature. Mm, okay. Um, jet also may include an, uh, induce an electric charge like that of amber when rubbed, and it's very easy to carve, but it's difficult to create fine details without breaking. So it takes an experienced lapidary, which is uh, the name of someone who cuts gemstones, uh, to execute more elaborate carving. Um, it can be found in England, and the jet found at Whitby in England uh, is the jet rock unit of the Mulgrave Shale member, which is part of the Whitby uh, mudstone formation. So it's a it's a formation that has a lot of fossilized minerals and and things in it. Uh, this jet deposit was formed approximately 181 million years ago during the Tawarshan Age of the early Jurassic Epoch. Oh my gosh! So there you go. I don't know any of my time any of my time <laughs> periods. By the way, you and me. Both. And I've been watching Time Team, which is a great uh, British television show that ran from like 95 to like 2012. Um, And I still haven't learned anything. So, you know, what are you going to do? Also, Jet is found in France, Spain, and the U.S., where Native American Navajo and Pueblo tribes of New Mexico were using regionally mined jet for jewelry and ornamentation of weapons uh, when early Spanish explorers reached the area in the 1500s. Uh, today, these jet deposits are known as Acoma Jet for the Acoma Pueblo people. Hmm. Um, jet as a gemstone became fashionable during the reign of Queen Victoria because uh, she wore a necklace of it as part of mourning dress for um, for when her husband died. So um, this became fashionable like in the 1850s when Prince Albert died. She, uh, later, she was such a trendsetter. Oh, she really was like everybody. Like the everybody Victorians just were wanted to like copy Queen Vicky. Yeah, because even though she Everything. was as wide as she was tall, um, <laughs> but you know she really put the goth in Victorian. So that was like her whole thing. Um, in some jewelry designs of the period, jet was combined with cut steel. So um, in in mourning dresses of that period, around like you know, the late 19th, early 20th century, you'll see jewelry and adornments that combine jet with what look like, um, uh, oh God, what's the name? I was just about to say malachite, but that's not what I'm looking for. And I'm looking up cut steel jewelry and it's just like, it's called cut steel jewelry. Aren't you looking for cut steel jewelry? That's what it's called. It's not called anything else. Whatever. I can't find it. It doesn't matter. Um, so yeah, you'll see like this kind of um, it's cut steel that kind of looks like pyramids, like tiny pyramids all put together to kind of catch the light. And so that was often combined with jet to kind of have like black sparkliness. Um, and it continued to be used in jewelry even after the decline of morning dress in the 1890s. Like people still like really loved it. Um, glass was used as a jet substitute during the peak of its popularity because it's cheaper and when it was used in this way, it was known as French jet or Vauxhall glass. Um, ebonite was also used as a jet substitute and initially looks very similar to jet, but it actually fades over time. Um, and in some cases, jet offcuts were mixed with glue and molded into jewelry. Um, also, anthracite or is hard coal, coal <laughs> yeah, um, is superficially similar to fine jet and has been used to imitate it. But, you know, you're walking around wearing coal a piece of coal <laughs> so there you go um although it is very it's not always easy to distinguish it from real jet unfortunately if you buy it at a turnpike rest stop in pennsylvania yeah. in pennsylvania it's probably anthracite it's definitely anthracite like if you go to the anthracite museum in <laughs> pennsylvania which is a real jewelry, place it's anthracite it's anthracite um also the the way you can tell the difference between glass black glass and jet is that uh, glass is cool to the touch. When you touch it, it's it's kind of cold and okay. chilly. Jet is not um, oh. because it has a lower thermal conductivity. Interesting. Also, jet tends to um, g- 
gather kind of a weird gray bloom on it after a lot of time. And I think that has to do with uh, its exposure to moisture. It's easy to clean. Um, you just kind of like rub um, uh, a, a very like low grade solvent on it. And when I was working at the Sue Internet Costume Collection, we would use interns to um, take a Q-tip and clean all of our jet jewelry, which there was a lot of it. So it's not a glamorous job, but it was necessary. And boy, it sparkled and shone after they were done hours and hours later. I always think of so. jet as like a very retro jewelry. Yeah. Like like that um somebody in the 50s would have worn some some jet earrings. Yes. It also came back in the early 90s to a certain extent because everything Victorian was kind of big in the mm. 90s like Victorian, you know, kind of Victorian-esque dressing. Um definitely like Victorian uh interior design was very big. So mm. jet kind of came back like you think about those chokers. Like mm. '90s chokers, yes, like black with jet. the oh, <laughs> yeah, with the now velvet, it's all coming back. and then like mm-hmm. a little bit of lace, and yep. then like the little like cameo, yeah, pendant. like a cameo or a drop, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, that was a very big. Um, so yeah, jet is cool, but it is essentially coal. Um, and you know, I talk about this in the diamonds are forever episode, but like diamonds are actually very common. But because of demand and because it's like diamonds are forever and like, don't you want to buy a diamond and De Beers and that whole thing. Frost yourselves. Um, yeah, frost yourself. <laughs> oh, my God. I haven't thought about that in a long time. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's just we've all agreed. We all agree this is worth something because someone made it pretty. Like so art. this is worth exactly like art. Again, taking it back to last week's episode look at us making connections uh by the way every single time that you've said jet i've gone (laughs) in my head so there you go see i've already i put two songs two terrible songs in my head thank you Mm -hmm. i'm so sorry so um my quiz today because we talk about um you know semi-precious stones things and amethyst specifically yours is also about about professional football teams it is it's about professional i'm you know it's about professional sports teams that have you know no it's actually this is a quiz on things that used to be rare awesome question number one these delicious snacks in the 17th century were regarded as signs of holiness and made exclusively by monks and were so revered that royal couples used them in their wedding ceremonies. What is this now common snack which you might eat now with a beer and some mustard or maybe dip in cheese? Question number two. This common seasoning was once one of the most important commodities in the world, partially because of its rarity and also because of demand. Brought into Europe along the Silk Road from Kerala in South India, the spice was so prized that traders in Venice and Genoa could essentially charge whatever they wanted. Don't push it and guess what I'm talking about. Question number three. This super abundant element is today used in everything from cars to cans. But once upon a time, specifically in the 19th century, it was so valuable that the U.S. government wanted to cover the nation's greatest monuments in it. What is this shiny but boring element? Question number four. Books were once extremely rare and prized by many of the world's most powerful monarchs. Ptolemy III of Egypt, for example, was super into keeping copies of the world's greatest texts. Where did he keep these books? A place whose story has a very unhappy ending. Question number five. Talking about spice again, this Thanksgiving-related spice was once worth more than gold in the 1300s, and some European countries even went to war over it. An aromatic spice with mild hallucinogenic effects. Today you could pick it up for about a buck fifty an ounce. What is this spice? Question number six. This mineral is essential for human survival, so of course people go crazy for it when there's a shortage. In fact, in the Civil War, Union troops made sure to attack the South's few inland production facilities of it. It was also used to preserve rations, tan leather, and dye clothes. What is this mineral? Question number seven. This fragrant plant with a delicious fruit was first cultivated by the Maya and therefore was imported to Europe starting in the 16th century. 
As you can imagine, the Italians and the Spanish immediately took to it, but it took Northern Europe a little while to get used to, since it's in the nightshade family. What is this now common food? Question number eight. Taking a bit of a turn here, Peruvians used this for fertilizer for generations until Europe got a hold of it in the late 19th century and created an absolute boom for the stuff. At its height, it dominated politics in the 19th century unlike any substance since. President Millard Fillmore dedicated his first State of the Union address to promising to bring prices of it down. In 1856, Congress passed a law allowing American citizens to claim islands rich with it for the U.S., no matter where in the world they were. What am I talking about? Question number nine. This alloy of iron was once extremely time-consuming and difficult to make, but thanks to a guy named Henry Bessemer, it is now a lot easier and cheaper to produce. What is this metal that is used in everything from blades to bridges? And finally, question number 10. This material was prized by the Romans who perfected their technique using quartz sand and made everything from drinking vessels to medallions out of it. Many museums have excellent examples of these objects, and Roman versions of this material tend to have beautiful iridescence. What is this material? We'll give you a minute to think about it, and we'll be right back with your answers. You're a rich girl and you're going too far Cause you know it don't matter anyway Well you can rely on the old man's money You can rely on the old man's money It's a bitch girl but you're gone too far Cause you know it don't matter anyway Well you can say money but it won't get you too far Get you too far and Don't you know Feeling good? Feeling strong. Here we go. Question number one. These delicious snacks in the 17th century were regarded as signs of holiness and made exclusively by monks and were so revered that the royal couples used them in their wedding ceremonies. What is this now common snack, which you might now eat with a beer and some mustard or maybe dipping cheese? That's a pretzel. That's a pretzel. Also, apparently it was pretzel makers who accidentally uncovered an Ottoman plot to sack Vienna in the 16th century by overhearing them digging a tunnel past their bakery walls. I love it. So pretzels have been involved in a lot of like dramatic things. You know how my family would go on like educational vacations? Yes. Um, We went to Lidditz, Pennsylvania, which is Mm. right outside of Strasburg. And we went to the Lidditz Pretzel Factory where we got to make our own pretzels. Oh, I'm jealous. I got to go to a pita factory when I was a kid and got to take home like a a whole bag of free pita, which is not bad. That's pretty nice. Yeah. You got to make your own pretzel, though. That's pretty good. I didn't have to. I didn't get to make a pita. So learn how to do the twist. So whenever we watch Mm. like Great British Bake Off and like every now, like they've probably done a pretzel challenge like two or three times at this point in the series. Absolutely. And Mm. anytime I see someone not able to twist a pretzel, I'm like... I could do that when I was seven years old. Like, yeah. I don't understand. I don't understand. It's the pressure. I think it's the pressure. And also, <laughs> you know, they're British. Like, they don't have a pretzel history. You know what I mean? <laughs> they don't you know have a pretzel saying? history. They don't All have right. a history with pretzels, All is right. what I'm saying. Question number two. This common seasoning was once one of the most important commodities in the world, partially because of its rarity and partially because of its demand. Brought into Europe along the Silk Road from Kerala in South India, the spice was so prized that traders in Venice and Genoa could essentially charge whatever they wanted. Don't push it and guess what I'm talking about. The pepper. It is pepper. Uh, Even to this day, the Dutch have a phrase that translate as pepper expensive for insanely overpriced items. (laughs) So they can say like, ugh, that car was pepper expensive, my man. 
Okay. Question number three, this super abundant element is today used in everything from cars to cans. But once upon a time, specifically the 19th century, it was so valuable that the U.S. government wanted to cover the nation's greatest monuments in it. What is this shiny but boring element? I was actually going to bring this up while you were talking in your episode. Oh, thank God I'm so glad I didn't. (laughs) It's Aluminium. Yes, it's aluminum. Um, in 1884, the price of 28 grams or one ounce of aluminum was around a dollar, which is not so much if you think, but until you compare it to the price of labor. Mm-hmm. For an average worker to afford a single ounce of aluminum, they'd need to work for a minimum of 10 hours straight. No breaks. Mm-hmm. For comparison, one ounce of silver currently costs around $17. So even on minimum wage in 2016, you can make that much in slightly over two hours. So it was expensive. And then uh, they figured qu- out how to like yeah, make, make it, it super yeah. easy. And then they were like, oh, pff, this is nothing. And now we can like cover our now food we in throw it. it away. Now we throw it. We go, ew. Ugh. This touched my I lasagna once. Out. <laughs> out. Out with the garbage. <laughs> Question number four. Books were once extremely rare and prized by many of the world's most powerful monarchs. Ptolemy III of Egypt, for example, was super into keeping copies of the world's greatest texts. Where did he keep these books? A place whose story has a very unhappy ending. (sighs) It's the Library of Alexandria. It is the Library of Alexandria. Um, The city of Alexandria even had a principle of searching any ship that docked for books. So if one was found, it would be confiscated for the library and the owner was given monetary compensation. All right. Yeah. So there you go. Question number five. Talking about spice again. This Thanksgiving related spice was once worth more than gold in the 1300s. And some European countries even went to war over it. An aromatic spice with mild hallucinogenic effects. Today you can pick it up for about a buck fifty an ounce. What is this spice? Do you want me to give you a hint? I can give you a hint. Okay. I'll take a hint. You hate it. Uh, nutmeg. Yes. <laughs> yes. In the 1600s, the nutmeg-rich island of Run in Indonesia became the most valuable piece of real estate on earth. Wow. The British and Dutch wound up going to war over this two-mile or three-kilometer scrap of land. The only reason they didn't wind up wiping each other out is because the Dutch agreed to swap Manhattan for it. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. So because of nutmeg, we're here. We're here. Wow. Yeah. Question number six. This mineral is essential for human survival. So, of course, people go crazy for it when there's a shortage. In fact, in the Civil War, Union troops made sure to attack the South's few inland production facilities of it. It was used to preserve rations, tan leather, and dye clothes. What is this mineral? Salt? Yes, it's salt. Okay. Great. Hmm. So taking down salt production was thought to be crucial to winning the war. Mm -hmm. And Jefferson Davis actually granted a waiver on military service to anyone who would head out to the coast and work in salt production, which was making it one of the few effective ways in the South to dodge the draft. Interesting. I'll work salt mines if uh, I don't have to fight for Mm -hmm. the South. So people took advantage of that. Question number seven. This fragrant plant with a delicious fruit was first cultivated by the Maya and therefore was imported to Europe starting in the 16th century. As you can imagine, the Italians and the Spanish immediately took to it, but it took Northern Europe a little while to get used to since it's in the nightshade family. What is this now common food? The tomato? It is the tomato. Um, In the early days of the American colonies, tomatoes were seen the way we might see a rare orchid today. (gasps) They were rare, valuable, and thought to be worth growing for their aesthetic value alone. They are kind of beautiful. People marveled over them. Americans of the 18th century even wrote poems about them in much the same way we might write a poem about a rose. An ode to a tomato. An ode to a tomato. It also smells wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to, uh, Burt's Bees used to make this t- garden tomato toner. Also, yes. anyone from Burt's Bees, if you're listening, bring back garden tomato toner. It smelled like a fresh tomato garden. It was wonderful. I loved smearing it on my face before bed. It was great. Question number eight. Taking a bit of a turn here, Peruvians used this for fertilizer for generations until Europe got a hold of it in the late 19th century and created an absolute boom for the stuff. At its height, it dominated politics, unlike any substance since. President Millard Fillmore dedicated his first State of the Union address to promising to bring prices down. In 1856, Congress passed a law allowing American citizens to claim islands rich with it for the U.S. no matter where in the world they were. 
What am I talking about? Uh, that's guano. <laughs> yes. Specifically, bird that, guano. Oh, bird guano. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In South America, it has been it had been largely ignored by the co- colonialists in favor of stripping the continent of precious metals. <laughs> but then one day in the early 19th century, a Prussian guy named Alexander von Humboldt got curious and sent a sample to some chemists back home. And then they realized just how powerful a fertilizer they were dealing with. And then Europe went crazy for it, and the age of guano was born. Until they discovered how they can make chemical fertilizer, like synthetic fertilizer themselves, and then the bubble bursts, and it was a big deal. Question number nine. This alloy of iron was once extremely time-consuming and difficult to make, but thanks to a guy named Henry Bessemer, it is now a lot easier and cheaper to produce. What is this metal that is used in everything from blades to bridges? (laughs) Lauren. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Come yes. on. Come on. It's uh let's <laughs> steal everybody. Yeah. I mean, this girl's from Steel City. She You're knows. From the Steel City. She, she knows what's up. Uh before the Bessemer process as it became known, early steel makers in the 17th century would increase the carbon content of molten pig iron by layering wrought iron with powdered charcoal in order to get steel and then they would like heat it for a week. Uh, this, as you can imagine, was a seriously imprecise way of doing things. Too much carbon makes the metal brittle, so Bessemer designed a pear-shaped receptacle referred to as a converter in which iron could be heated while oxygen could be blown through the molten metal. And as oxygen passed through the molten metal, it would react with carbon, releasing carbon dioxide and producing a more pure iron. If you don't think I also visited an <laughs> iron works <laughs> during my... During yeah. all of our uh, our vacations. Uh, you got another thing coming because she was there. I was there. All about it. Steel is in her blood, everybody, which is causes a lot of side effects. <laughs> <laughs> we edit out a lot of Julia's uh, steel fever screams out of this. <laughs> steel fever. She's got that steel fever. All right. Question number 10. Uh, This material was prized by the Romans who perfected their technique using quartz sand and made everything from drinking vessels to medallions out of it. Many museums have excellent examples of these objects, including the Memorial Art Gallery in Rochester, New York. And Roman versions of this material tend to have beautiful iridescence. What is this material? Is this glass, glass, glass. It is glass, glass, glass. Um, If you'd like to learn more about glass and glass making, check out our episode number 20, Heart of Glass. It's It's okay. Just kidding. How Just kidding. I was trying to be, I was trying to mix up a little. No, that's good. I think, I think it's important to keep ourselves on want, our toes. I don't want people to think that we're just like, you know, we just have a button where we just. No, no. Tired of talking. We, we just hit the, that. That is a, it's you get very a good fresh, button. <laughs> you, you get a fresh, it's very good every time, guaranteed. Um. So yeah, so that was a little bit about semi-precious stones and, and rare things, things that used to be rare, things are common now. So I love it. Here you go. Yeah. Excellent job. Speaking of rare, uh, do you like video games? <laughs> video okay, games first are of all, there extremely are rare, video rare. Games, and then rare is also a video game um, studio. Oh, right. Ooh, anyway. I didn't know that. Anyway, so uh, if you like us and you want to see us on your computer screens on Thursday, April 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern, Lauren and I will be co-hosting a virtual trivia night event Mm -hmm. for the Strong Museum leading up to the World Video Game Hall of Fame induction for the 2021 class at the beginning of May. So Mm -hmm. that night we're going to be doing um, video game trivia asterisk for non-video gamers. So... If, even if you don't think you know a lot about video games, don't worry. Every question will also have a clue for you to get to the correct answer, even if you have not memorized the entire back catalog of Nintendo or Sega or whoever. Yeah. And frankly, you're going to have me sitting there, your representative uh, on screen as someone who knows literally nothing about video games. So, I mean, if I, I'll be playing along with you. <laughs> sort of i'll have the answers in front of me but if i she i would have volunteered for this anyway because i think you'll be able to get to the answer through a different path and that is what's you important will be about able trivia to get to the is answer that through a different path yes yeah, yes so exactly. that's what's so cool about this is that no matter what you'll be able to figure it out through um either knowing a lot about video games or just have being somebody who just enjoys trivia and knows a little bit a lot about a lot of things Thank you, Lauren. 
Exactly. Oh, you're so you're going to learn a little bit about um, the finalists for the World Video Game Hall of Fame for this year, yeah. as well as some of the previous inductees who might be featured in some of the questions. We may have been dropping hints at you for the last, I don't know, month or so about some of have the we? answers. So... Yeah, I wasn't privy to this. Have you? Oh, yeah. In the, oh. uh, when we did the mag trivia night, we did an answer, and I was like, "Remember this for next month." Oh, right. Month. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's gonna be great. Um, you can find links to it on our social media accounts or at museumofplay.org. Um, we'd love to have you in the audience. And like Lauren mentioned last week, um, we would love to see like a nice contingent of misinfopod listeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, represented there will here be, as there will be some nerds might not be considered the video game contingent for this. So um, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm excited about it and we hope to see you there. So join us, join us, join us. And uh, thanks so much for listening to this episode, you guys. And yes. we will catch you next time. Yes. Go- goodbye, cats and kittens. <laughs> I'm using it. I'm tr- All right. I'm doing Let's do it. it. I'm, I'm doing it. it. Carol Baskin it. does not have the trademark on cats and kittens. No, and she does not. it can mean not. anybody, you know? Yeah, I like it. It's gender neutral. Thank you, cats and kittens. We will catch you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>